As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to the intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Most post-communist countries have seen population declines, but none as severe as Russia's. COVID and the Ukraine war have exacerbated a longstanding problem. In 50 years' time, Russia may have 25 million fewer people than it has today. And you may think that covering a silent art in an audio format like a podcast is an exercise in absurdity. But the world's greatest ever mime, Marcel Marceau, was born a hundred years ago today. We look back at what made him such a remarkable artist. First up, though. Later today... The French president, Emmanuel Macron, will be interviewed on national television in an effort to appease widespread and persistent anger. There have been protests in Paris, Lyon, Bordeaux. They've taken to the street in anger at Mr. Macron's pension reform that pushes the age of retirement from 62 to 64. His fellow politicians aren't happy either. Mr. Macron used a constitutional provision to push his plans through the National Assembly without putting them to a vote. This week, his government survived not one, but two no-confidence votes. Absolute des membres composant cette Assemblée 287 pour l'adoption 278. But just barely. It was a much closer vote than anybody expected. The margin was just nine votes, and that involved 19 Republicans voting against the government. Sophie Petter is The Economist's Paris bureau chief. So it really does reflect a level of political discontent in France about both this pension reform and the way that President Macron has gone about passing it in Parliament. You could see that in the National Assembly on Monday, but you could also see that on the streets. There is a sort of brewing mood of discontent that could spread and in some ways almost feels reminiscent of the Gilets jaunes protests back a few years ago. Give us a sense, before you start talking more about the discontent, a sense of why pension reform triggered a no-confidence vote. Well, President Macron wanted to raise the pension age in France, the minimum pension age, from 62 years to 64. And he put this in his manifesto when he was re-elected last year. But it's not popular. Nobody wants to be asked to spend another two years at work. And he is in charge of a minority government. So he lost his parliamentary majority elections last year. That meant that he was scraping around trying to put together a majority in parliament to pass this. Well, he couldn't manage in the end, he tried. And because of that, he decided that he couldn't take a risk of putting this through to an ordinary parliamentary vote. And instead, he resorted to this article of the Fifth Republic Constitution, which everyone calls by its name 49.3, which means that in effect, you don't have a vote in parliament, but you do 
provoke or at least open the way to a no-confidence vote. And that's what happened on Monday. There were two no-confidence votes. And if they had been successful, they would have overturned not only the legislation, so the pension reform, but the government itself uh, would have been toppled. So in order to topple the government, the opposition needed 287 votes. And in the end, they got only 278. And Marine Le Pen, who's the leader of the far-right National Rally Party, was expressing her discontent at the end of it. Cette motion de censure n'a pas été votée, certes, mais à neuf petites voix. C'est beaucoup moins que ce qui avait été... She said that the motion of no confidence had failed, but only by nine votes, which was a lot less than had been forecast. Même si, mathématiquement, le résultat... That meant, in her view, that although the numbers weren't there and the government was happy about that, politically, they couldn't be happy about the situation. And a second effort to topple the government with another no-confidence vote, which was brought by Marie Le Pen, also failed by an even bigger margin. So the two no-confidence votes failed. Does that mean, then, that pension reform is moving forward without any more roadblocks? Well, not really. It's got to go past the Constitutional Council first. And there's also an attempt by the opposition to force the government to hold a referendum on this. This also has to go to the Constitutional Council. So there are two decisions that that highest French court is now going to have to look at before it can be finally put onto the statute books. But even more importantly than that is the fact that on the streets, the opposition has decided and is trying to encourage people to continue to protest because they want to reverse this reform, even though it has been passed now by Parliament. And Sophie, earlier in this conversation, you said he wanted to put forward this legislation without putting it to a vote. Can you explain a bit more about what that means, how he did that, why he did that? It is an article of the Constitution that was written in by Charles de Gaulle when he established the Fifth Republic in 1958. It was designed to enable governments to pass important legislation, even when it was difficult to put together a majority in Parliament. So since then, it's been actually used exactly 100 times. So it is not unusual, but it is controversial. And I think that it is seen as the sort of nuclear option for a government. And particularly for Macron, who is seen as a leader, who is sort of imperious and a little heavy-handed in the way he governs France. And I think that means that that there is an argument that it was undemocratic, even if it is constitutional, and that it was a way of forcing a piece of legislation through against the will of the people. Sophie, why did President Macron feel this was so necessary to push through? Well, I think it's got to do with the same factors that are uh, affecting every country in the West. It's an aging population. It's the strain of a public pension system that consumes 14% of GDP. That's twice the OECD average in France. And people living to a longer age. If you look at the number of pensioners 15 years ago, there are about 13 million in France. And today that's gone up to 17 million. So something has to give. And that something in Macron's mind was the fact that people were going to have to work two years longer. That seemed to him the soundest way in which to resolve the financing problem. And from where I sit on the other side of the Atlantic, a retirement with a publicly funded pension at 64 seems pretty generous. Why has simply shifting the retirement age later by two years caused such a furious reaction? 
Well, it always does in France. If you look back at sort of the last 30 years, every time a government has tried to raise the pension age in France, it's been resisted very firmly by the French. I think that there is something about French culture which considers a pension age and a dignified retirement as part of civilization, as part of what makes French society French. And therefore, the idea that you are going to deny that right, or at least push the retirement age back, is seen as a kind of infringement of that right and of the sort of social preferences of French society. So I do think that it's a particularly difficult one for any president to touch in France. And so that's the why. Let's talk a bit more about the what. You said at the beginning that these protests that it sparked could become the start of something bigger. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, there are ongoing strikes that have been rolling from day to day on the railways. On Thursday, there's another national strike. I was just walking around the streets uh, outside our office here in Paris, and there is rubbish piled up all the way along the streets, on every street, uh, that has been left to rot for days and days. And there is no sign of that being resolved anytime soon. So there is a real kind of organised protest movement. But I think what possibly worries the government more is the idea of these spontaneous disorganised protests that have been erupting after dark on the streets of Paris and other cities. And that is something that, again, with the Gilets Jaunes movement a few years ago, we saw how rapidly those sorts of protests can spread. So maybe it will be contained this time, but I think there is a concern that the anger is such that this really could be one of those moments where a sort of some kind of social rebellion emerges. And where does that leave President Macron? Macron was re-elected last year and he had this reform to raise the retirement age in his manifesto written in black and white. So it's very hard for the French to say they weren't warned that this would happen. But the fact that in the end he had to resort to this article of the Constitution, I think, will exacerbate his reputation for uh, a sort of top-down governing style, which is unfortunate. And it would have been much better for him and for France if this had gone to an ordinary parliamentary vote. You know, this has obviously been a very difficult moment for him, but he has got the reform through. And I think the big question now is whether he's won a bit of breathing space and he can build on that to continue to do useful things in France, which is, you know, in the end, what the country needs. All right, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Russia's war in Ukraine is exacerbating a problem that should be troubling Vladimir Putin. The world's largest country by land area is losing population at an alarming clip. Russian fighters are dying in the war. Educated Russians are fleeing the country to avoid conscription. And the Russians who remain are dying earlier than just a few years ago. Russia's been in demographic decline on and off for about 30 years John Parker is an international correspondent for The Economist. 
But in the past two, three years, it's dramatically and catastrophically accelerated. Russia seems to be entering a kind of demographic doom loop. John, Russia isn't the only country facing demographic decline. Japan is, South Korea is, more recently China is as well. What makes Russia's case unique? The Russian demographic decline's much sharper than Japan. So Japan's lost about 2 million population in 12, 13 years. Russia's losing population at the rate of about a million a year. So that's 2 million in two years. And Japan's been able to adjust basically because it's been a relatively gentle process, whereas Russia's process is much faster. It's associated with levels of misery that you just don't see in a country like Japan. So, for example, Japan's one of the oldest countries in the world. People are living much longer. In Russia, people are dying quite extraordinarily young. If you're a man and you reach 15, you've only got about another 50 years of life in Russia. So you're going to die at about 65. That's the same age as people die in Haiti. It's six years younger than people die in Bangladesh and like 18 years younger than people die in Japan. And the way that Japan and Germany and other countries have dealt with their demographic decline is they've managed at the same time to kind of ramp up education. So people are older, yes, but they're a lot better educated. Russia's got quite a high level of education, but the war in Ukraine has been associated with a massive outflow of the best-educated young Russians. Uh, The Russian state said that something like 10% of all Russia's IT engineers fled the country to avoid the draft. So the main way in which other countries have found to sort of keep the economy going even while it aged, Russia doesn't really have that ability. John, you mentioned the war in Ukraine, and you also mentioned earlier in this conversation that Russia's demographic decline had been going on for a while. But I wonder if you could give us a sense of the effects of two recent acute causes, the war in Ukraine and the COVID pandemic. Yeah, the war in Ukraine's definitely made some of the things that was occurring in Russian demography worse. But it itself, just the battle casualties, are, at least in demographic terms, not all that great. According to Western estimates, Russia has seen about 200,000 casualties in the war. That includes injured as well as dead. Um, The COVID pandemic was much greater. The numbers on this are complicated by the fact that the Russian state numbers are pretty unbelievable. There's something like uh, a few hundred thousand people claimed by the Russians to have died of COVID. But the real numbers, other studies suggest, is, well, at least a million, a million and a half. That's a very substantial number. How does this exacerbation of Russia's population decline affect their ability to keep prosecuting this war? I think the short-term practical implications of the fall in the number of young Russian men are not immediately all that great. According to the defense minister late last year, Uh, Russia was able to recruit another 300,000 young men to send to Ukraine. On the face of it, it wouldn't seem to, you know, make a big difference to the number of young Russians who are sort of being sent to the meat grinder there. But in the longer run, it must make it much more difficult for Russia to carry out its 
twice a year military mobilization. And Russia has a plan to increase by about 350,000 the total number of young men in its armed forces. That must be harder. They're beginning to run up against more objections from those who have been mobilized. And one of the effects of the continued mobilization is to sort of exacerbate problems between ethnic Russians and the very large number of non-Russian minorities who live in Russia. These are people like the Tatars, the Chechens, and so on. They are bearing a disproportionate number of new mobilized young Russians. There have already been demonstrations in one of them called Dagestan, which is in the southern Caucasus. And so it seems like it's more and more difficult for Putin to mobilize the number of people he needs to mobilize. What can Russia do? What should Russia do to arrest this demographic decline? I think it's possible that Russia could begin to reverse it. We can say that because in the 2010s, until the COVID pandemic, Russia was actually beginning to do this. So in about 2007, Putin introduced a number of pronatal policies. So he he made it easier for people to get childcare. He gave more generous bonuses for child allowances, for example. In particular, he made it financially more attractive to have second and third children. And there was a certain recovery in the fertility rate in Russia during this period. Now, it might have happened anyway, but it's not just the policies. Russia could become the kind of country in which young Russian couples wanted to bring more children into the world. One of the big problems they face at the moment is that there seems to be sort of an aversion to having more children. The fertility rate is falling very fast. But honestly, the big challenge is for Russia just to become the kind of country where people want to bring more children into the world. And that requires a different kind of Russia. What happens if things don't change, if Russia fails to arrest its demographic decline? On current trends, Russia is going to go from a country at the moment of about 145 million people to maybe 130 million people by the middle of the century, 2050, and 120 million by about 2070. We haven't seen a drop of that kind ever before. It's almost inconceivable that Russia would be able to sustain a population drop of 20 million or more and maintain social peace. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for asking me. And as John Parker said in that interview, one reason the war in Ukraine has exacerbated Russia's long-standing demographic woes is the exodus it's caused. You can hear the stories of liberal Russians who fled their country on our new podcast, Next Year in Moscow. Say the word mine, and one name will come to mind. Marcel Marceau. Henry Hitchings writes about culture for The Economist. There is, of course, a certain irony in discussing mime in audio. It's unspeakable. 
But in all seriousness, it's a subject that lends itself to irony or just a joke so bad, you'll never want to hear from me again. As the gag goes, an apprentice mime pops in to see his mentor. You're just not cut out to be a mime. Was it something I said? Yes. Despite a long history that embraces Greek tragedy and Roman farce, mime is a much derided form of art. I think of its silent exponents as clowns you can't hear coming, and they're the butt of a great sketch by the American cartoonist Gary Larson. If a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, and it hits a mime, does anyone care? Marcel Marceau was born a hundred years ago today in Strasbourg. He had a rare ability to transform his body. He could convey in two or three gestures what others simply could not. There's something very pure about his style, very certain, very polished, solid rather than tentative. Marceau is underappreciated. I think in part that's because he is synonymous with his most famous creation, this chalk-faced clown called Beep, who sported a stripy jumper and a crumpled stovepipe hat that was topped with a rather limp red flower. First presented in 1947, Beep was part Harlequin, part homage to Charlie Chaplin's melancholy bumbler, The Little Tramp. His sad looks and elastic gestures would become a cliché aped by every street performer who has wrestled with the wind or opened an imaginary door. But Marceau was a complex artist, scarred by adolescent upheaval. He was born Marcel Mangel into a Jewish family in Strasbourg, and as a child, he reveled in drawing and gymnastics. 1939, ahead of the Nazi invasion of Germany, his hometown was evacuated and at the urging of a cousin, he joined the French resistance and his enthusiasms proved invaluable there. He altered the documents of Jewish children and posed as a Boy Scout to smuggle others. He used mime to encourage the youngsters to stay quiet en route. But he was unable to save his father, a butcher, who was arrested by the Gestapo in 1944 and died in Auschwitz. That year, Marceau put on his first public entertainment as a mime for a crowd of 3,000 American soldiers. Though his compositions could be intensely funny, they also paid oblique tribute to those who had been silenced by the war, to the poignancy of one's voice being cut off by death. He didn't immediately make it big, it was a tour of America in 1955 and 56 that brought in genuine celebrity, and from then on, he toured relentlessly. He performed in more than 80 countries and clocked up as many as 300 solo shows a year, introducing a global audience to his brand of poetry, so vivid, yet so fleeting. Marceau's subject matter ranged pretty wide. It wasn't just struggling to open an umbrella or sliding around helplessly on imaginary ice skates. He explored pride, solitude, the pathos of old age, sin, as well as adaptations of Franz Kafka, Nikolai Gogol and Voltaire. He also had a career in cinema, 
but his work for the big screen never quite captured the lyrical expressiveness of his stage act. Probably the most famous film that he appeared in was Barbarella, starring Jane Fonda. But his most notable moment on film came in 1976 in Mel Brooks's silent movie. A parody of the slapstick films of the silent movie era. The irony here being that Marceau uttered the one word spoken in the entire film. No! He remains a reference point for all mimes and indeed for physical theatre. There's more to both than Marcel Marceau but his influence on them was fast. I discovered Marcel Marceau in 2015. I was a student at the theatre school L'Ecole Philippe Gollier. Hi, I'm Elf Lyons. I am a comedian and clown, and I do mime. First of all, the reason I think everyone looks to Marcel Marceau is the execution of what he does. He does it beautifully. He's a gymnast. It's done with such precision. I think crucially as well, what takes him further than others is his humanity and his kindness in his work. He's never punching down. He's never cruel. His characters are so well observed and they are performed with such love and tenderness. All his work comes from a space of lightness and the joy of life. Duffy and I met over lockdown. Duffy is deaf. I'm not. We became friends through mime. I would mime to him and then I learnt BSL in order for us to collaborate and become friends. And so Heist, our show, is a show that merges mime and visual vernacular, which is form of theatre the deaf community created, which is mime and high definition. And we use that to show the connection between hearing people and deaf people and how you can make friendships regardless of language. When Marcel Marceau spoke about his work, it was with great tenderness. Reflecting on the power of the medium he'd chosen, he asked, Do not the most moving moments of our lives find us without words? That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcast at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.